0: For the big storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world today is Sunday, January 7th. How much fun was that? What an opening championship Sunday to the new season for all of us to enjoy. Now, I had some serious expectations entering the day. Certainly, some storylines with serious gravitas across the board. You had world number two versus world number three, the reigning Australian Open final matchup on the women's side of things in Brisbane. And for the men there, you had a Grigor Dimitrov looking to end a six year title drought, something none of us thought would be possible after he won his last title at the 2017 ATP Finals. You also had Goff vs. Svitolina, Rublev vs. Rusevori, and then perhaps the storyline above all else, that United Cup Final featuring Iniga Sviantek, two top 10 players in Sasha Zverev, Hubi Herkots, and then, of course, Angie Kerber in her return to the WTA Tour here in 2024. You had a lot of things to get excited about as a tennis fan. And I am here to report today, the day even exceeded my expectations. So many fun things to get to here on today's podcast. I want to start with that United Cup final. There is nothing I enjoy more than sudden death mixed doubles. And probably that goes back to my own playing days when I was a freshman in college. Our club tennis national finals, we had a match come down to mixed doubles. My partner and I, Andrea Rivera, down three games going into that mixed doubles set. I'll never forget. 5-2, deuce point, Andrea returning. I said, Andrea, you're going to knife this forehand return cross court. I am poaching. I am going right away. It's not going to be any hesitation. It's a full go from me. I'm going to smack the poach away. We're going to win this match 6-2, close it out here in mix. No overtime necessary. That's precisely what happened. So again, I'm always going to have a positive connotation associated with sudden death mixed doubles, but... Oh my god, did it deliver with Sigamund and of ultimately delivering a six-four-five-seven-ten-four 10 4 victory to give Germany that 2-1 win and the United Cup title, and again That Sudden Death Mixed Doubles was excellent. It might have been the third best match we had in the rubber, whether it was Shviontek, a real push in that first set she received from Angie Kerber. But the way she was able to separate, sort of indicative of the week she had, the most outstanding player was excellent. Once again, Sasha Zverev digging deep deep fighting off two match points to ultimately win a three-set victory over Hubi Hercots to extend the rubber. I got to get into that United Cup final and again offer my final reflections on what I thought was a truly successful event to kick off the year. And then we'll get to Brisbane. Obviously, what Elena Rybakina did The whole world, tennis world, excuse me. Maybe the whole world more broadly should take notice, but the whole tennis world certainly has to drop just three games against Arena Sabalenka. And again, those three games weren't all Sabalenka service games. It speaks to just how in form, locked in Rabakina was to start this season all week long. And certainly we saw that level from her last night. Dominant performance from the world number three I want to break down today. And then I got to get into Coco Golf, and I should have said this yesterday. We had the world's number one, two, three, and four all competing in our first championship Sunday of the year. That's freaking awesome for women's tennis. Just a really nice showcase for our sport yesterday. And certainly that goff fidelina match featured elite tennis. Coco Goff probably should have won the match in straight sets, but had to dig deep to pull that one out in three. And again, so many positive reflections from Alina Svitolina's level throughout the course of the week I want to get into today. But Got to give Coco Gauff the props or give her her flowers, as the kids say. She was excellent back-to-back titles in Auckland for the young American. We'll talk about how she pulled off the second here on today's show. And obviously, then we got to get into the men's side of things. Grigor Dimitrov does end that title drought. How did he do it? Required some exceptional tennis. And that's what we've seen from him now for seven months consecutively. He did it again to knock off Runa in straights. Obviously, Andrei Rublev just... Continues to be really, really good week in, week out. You know the level. Maybe one of the surest things we have across men's or women's tennis week in, week out. He delivers in a straight set victory over Rusevori in the Hong Kong final. We can break down. And then last but certainly not least, the breaking news from early this morning. And apologies for the detail I'm about to share. But I may have gotten up early this morning to go to the restroom, and when I did get up, by the way, it was two all in the third set between Zverev and Hercats, and so I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to stay up now for an hour and a half, aren't I? I did. To watch the ending of that match. Couldn't help myself. But then also I checked the Twitter sphere, and you got the breaking news. Rafael Nadal withdrawing from the 2024 Australian Open due to injury. I want to talk about what he announced in terms of his injury on social media today and then offer my reaction on obviously that disappointing piece of news for all of us tennis fans particularly given how good Rafa looked in matches 1 and 2 in Brisbane this week. Obviously clearly tweaked something against Thompson in that quarterfinal match. And again, want to offer my reaction talk about that news because certainly that is a big piece of breaking news uh, for us to absorb here from the tennis world today. And again, storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. That's what this podcast is all about. Again, a thank you to all of you listeners who have tuned in. It's been a big opening week. I went back and looked at the numbers because I'm weird like that. It's our biggest opening week in mini break podcast history. Sometimes the listeners like to dip their toes in here in early January before we start to get into our Australian Open coverage. Nope, that's not the case this year. You're all sticking with us. You're looking for the updates day in, day out. We really appreciate your passion. We hope to keep you the most well-informed, best educated fans in the business. That's why I'm offering podcasts every day this week. Going to try and hit every Day in the month of January. Now, once our college tennis coverage starts, I actually think we're going to be going Monday through Thursday, plus a Saturday mini break podcast for all of you listeners. Those will be our five episodes each week, but we'll deal with that when the college tennis really gets underway. And if you want to learn about that college tennis, Great Shot podcast is the place for you. You thought I wasn't going to sneak in that plug here? No, no, no. Come on. It's a Sunday. Got to sneak in the plugs. Check out that. Check out the Correct Interviews podcast. Make sure you subscribe to all three of our podcasts as well as our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. And as always, leave us a comment, leave us a review, leave us those five stars. I always love hearing what you listeners have to say, your thoughts on what you'd like to hear more of moving forward. So feel free to leave that on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to this show. Again, a thank you to all of you who continue to tune in. A thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. -point Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. All right, let's get into our first championship Sunday of the new season, and I want to start with the United Cup, an event that unequivocally delivered this year, whether it was the plethora of sudden death mixed doubles we saw across rubbers throughout the entirety of the event, or whether it was just the individual matchups, the fact that we got to see players like Rude, Chorich, Herkant, Zverev, Nori, Demonauer, Djokovic all participate so enthusiastically in this event. It was clear it mattered to these players to have that opportunity to represent your country in particular, to have the opportunity to compete in a team format, which of course is so rare within our sport. This event mattered and that heightened importance was reflected in the level we saw, I thought, from everyone throughout the course of the week. And then again, you get the superstar laced matchups, the fact that an Alex Diemenauer comes out and beats a Novak Djokovic in straight sets, comes out and beats a Sasha Zverev in three sets when his team was down one love and fighting for to save off elimination throughout the course of his singles match to get to do that in front of a home crowd as well. How special was that environment I mean again on the women's side as well to see Iga go 5-0 and just confirmation she's now won 16 consecutive matches heading into the Australian Open and obviously I'm going to get into how good Rabakina has looked Sabalenka through the majority of the week looked outstanding as well she's going to need to play her best tennis to win the title in Melbourne but she certainly seems to be playing that best level of tennis to start this season to get to see her test by players like Garcia players like Jung Chin, Wen, and others again you got to see all of them, Chin Wen and Garcia, and you know, again, whether it was uh Layla Fernandez, who I thought looked really good in a couple of her matches, Maria Sakkari Fernandez probably should have won that first set, but again, Sakkari able to dig herself out of that one, win it in straight. She had the Katie Bolter moment early in the week as well. The tennis was outstanding. So many fun storylines from so many different matches. And that's, again, just at a surface level. You want to dig even deeper than that. How about the drama we got on a match-by-match basis? The fact that our deciding match comes down to a 10-4 third set deciding rubber. Just that sort of drama. I just feel like you don't get that week-in, week-out, match-in, match-out the way this United Cup so frequently delivered throughout the course of its week and... Obviously, again, this was a thrilling tie between Poland and Germany. Germany ultimately taking the title with a 2-1 decision. It started out... With a really fun first set. That scoreline, 6-3, 6-love, it's misleading because Angelique Kerber had multiple breakpoints to go up 3-2 in the first set. Multiple breakpoints to go up 4-3 in the first set. And those breakpoints were created off of the back of some spectacular changes of direction from Kerber who still does flash that ability to beat you to the spot, to flatten something out and just change direction at whim. And again, that's how she makes you uncomfortable absorbing, redirecting. Your pace and then applying it in a direction which at least expect that gear was there for the first seven games. It wasn't there the rest of the way. Just Iga wore her down, and again the discipline from Iga on those break points to fight them off with just relentless plus one aggression. And even if that plus one ball didn't result in a winner, now you had Kerber on her back foot, and the trust in Iga to continue to push Kerber side to side, knowing eventually, you know, I am. S- consistent enough, hit with enough pace aggression to break down the Kerber wall. That's, what, that's precisely what happened over the course of what? It was three all in this match. She wins the last nine games. Like, that is what happened. She just wore Kerber down. And look, Kerber played the late match last night, a three-set thriller uh, that ultimately she won against Ila Tamjanovic, like, I'm not – and meanwhile, Kerber, I'm not uh, – Sviantek, excuse me. Yeah, she played three sets against Garcia, but the pace of their weeks against Sviantek's victory a little less physically taxing than a Kerber who, by the way, is playing her first tennis in 18 months. Iga should have won this match, 6-3, 6-love. She should have broken down Angelique Kerber over the course of the hour and a half or however long they were out on court. And by the way, that's precisely what happened? A world number one looked the part of world number one, ultimately tested, but then just too good everywhere. And again, there was some serious pressure on Ega, always to put Poland up one love because you felt like she was the sure thing. And certainly against the Sasha Zverev ranked higher than her Hercats. You kind of need Iga to deliver there to give Hubi that freedom to swing a little bit more freely, to be the aggressor, take some chances because you know Zverev physically is going to be in the fight. He's going to be consistent. He's going to try to grind you down. Iga did her job all week long. Again, did not lose a singles rubber, lost just one mixed doubles rubber, which we'll get to here in a moment, a mixed doubles rubber that featured some fantastic, albeit nervy, tennis but Iga's your most outstanding player for the reason. Racked up the most singles victories of anyone and was the surest thing. Why is Poland in this final? Because they were up 1-0 in every match they played. And that's Iga Sviantek, most outstanding player. Love that the United Cup is giving out that award. I would have considered Kasper Ruud for that award as well because him being as good as he was is the only reason Norway had a moment in this event. But again, credit to Iga. Most outstanding player was outstanding again last night, three in love. She's now won 16 consecutive matches entering the Australian Open. And by the way, Kerber looked better and better. She playing top 25 tennis? No. She playing top 50 tennis? I'd have that discussion, certainly in that conversation. Depends on the matchup. I think the bigger weapons might give her a little bit more trouble, particularly players who are going to be willing to take those big cuts on the return of serve, but how many players are, are going to be consistent enough with those weapons and physical enough to match you know, the consistency, uh, the combination, excuse me, of power and and physicality to match Kerber. I don't know uh, if there are 50 players in the world who can do it better. So again, she hasn't played in 18 months. I thought it was an impressive week for Kerber in her return to the court. Speaking of impressive, I mean, yeah, the flick passing shot from Zverev to fight off the match point down 6-4 in the second set breaker was absolutely ridiculous. And Hubie did everything right. Hit the first serve to the right spot. Backhand cross was a great approach. Even did well Did dig his way out of a low backhand volley and hit a little dipping chip and force Verup to have to hit something on the run spectacular and that's what, exactly what Sasha Zverev did. A spectacular on-the-run forehand pass, a second pass, excuse me, by Hubi Hercats, who, by the way, closed after hitting his drop volley. Zverev was just too good on that pass. And then big first serves from Zverev, who made another 75% of his first serves. And again, how has he problem-solved his way out of his second serve yips? He just makes his first serve more frequently. It's crazy that that was his solution. I'm not going imp- to— improve, excuse me, or he's, I'm sure, tried, but the second serve hasn't made the gains. It's that I'm just going to get my first serve so good that I don't even have to think about the second serve. And honest to God, it's worked. Um, you know, again, digs himself out of that a uh, uh, forehand. I think net cord that drifts wide on that 7-6 uh, set point, excuse me, for Zverev ultimately seeds him then Second set breaker, and then again, a couple of leaky forehands. That was the difference. A couple of leaky forehands from Hubie Hercats. Oh, no, he misses his forehand approach long on that one. It was the break in the third set. Hercats hits a net cord with a forehand cross that ultimately leaks wide. That's what secures the break for zero. That was the one break he needed to ultimately win this match. And again, you look for... Hubi Hercats. he fought off six of seven break points that he faced in this match. He only made 59% of his first serves, won 77% of those first serve points, and got broken once in a three-hour match. Again, 6-7, 7-6, 6-4 victory for Sasha Zverev. On the flip side, Zverev didn't face a break point. Zverev made 75% of his first serves, won 86% of his first serve points. Again, I think Hercats had 19 aces to Zverev's ace. So it was plus one tennis. And credit to Hubi, who was able in moments to match Zverev's physicality and extend rallies. He was never better, though, in those extended rallies. They seem to always lean the way of Zverev, who, again, was just better in the forehand cross exchanges. Yeah, Hubi was is great at hitting his middle third forehand inside out. He's even great at hitting the outer third forehand inside out as well. That down-the-line forehand's the one that can leak on him a little wide or a little long when he tries to flatten it out. He also can get a little yankee on that forehand cross, and that's the one he'll shank a little short or pop up. But again, like, it was three forehand errors. That was really the biggest difference in this match. That featured one break of serve. And who held his nerve so extraordinarily well? He had the match point. He hit the volley beautifully. Zverev just came up with a ridiculous pass. Again, sometimes good gets defeated by great. That's what Zverev was in that moment. And then just too consistent down the home stretch in the third. Again, came up over the top of a couple of backhand returns to draw those forehand errors ultimately from Hercats in that 3-all service game. Held his nerve to hold at 40-30 as well when he gets that backhand error on the match point. So, Zvirov's looked the part. It's a good week for Zvirov. 4-1 and one overall wins over Tsitsipas, Sonego, and Hurkacz. Uh, excuse me, Tsitsipas, Manorino, and Hurkacz. All top 25 players. Obviously, Herkot, Pass, both top 10 players, which was a real struggle for him last season. That was his biggest. You look over his last 52 weeks or his 2023 season, that was his biggest struggle was that record against top 10 opponents where he goes, what, 4-14 and overall, even though he won two of his last three. and 4-14 overall against top 10 opponents. Now he's 2-0 and already to start this season. Again, a better start to Sasha Zero, certainly from a confidence perspective. Yeah, he lost a three-set match to Alex Demon Hour. That was inspired tennis from the Demon, and Demon's playing top 10, maybe even top 5 hardcore tennis right now. Demon beat Djokovic in the same week, so I don't think you knock your head. or ho- Again, and your team won the double, uh, won the title. You come back with Laura Siegmund. Uh, again, it was reported during the match. Sasha Derev went to bed 5.45 a.m. Sunday morning, then plays these night matches, plays singles. A three-hour three-set thriller comes right back out for the mixed doubles. You could tell he did not have a lot of gas left in the tank, but just enough. He and Lara Siegemann, 6-4, 5-7, 10-4 over Svjantek and Herkatz. By the way, just quick final note on Herkatz before I get to that mixed. Pretty solid week as well. Was broken once in a 6-4 in the third loss to Zverev where he had two match points. Against Davidovich, Fokina, 6-4 loss in the third. Wins over Zheng Zizhen, Manarino, and Sabathild solid week for Hubie Hurkatsu who, again, has been pretty darn good, certainly a top 10 player on hard courts since the start of August, that you know that North American hard court stretch last year. He's got to be in the mix to make a quarterfinal run if the draw breaks right at the Australian Open, certainly someone I would not want to face, he, just given the serve, the weapons he plays, and then the combination of physicality he brings as well. But again, just not quite enough for Sviantek and Hercats, who had their moments, multiple duties. Deuce points early in that first set uh, in their mixed doubles final rubber against Siegemund and Zverev. Both deuce points go the way of the Germans, and that's ultimately how the Germans ultimately hold on to that six-four opening set then Shvantech found a rhythm some of the angles she found on backhand crosses how well she was returning a uh, uh, search the depth she was able to play with was able to just rip cross court winners in baseline exchanges against either Siegmund or Zverev and again set who be up so well at the net again though things got a little shaky Siegmund was the best doubles player on the court and there's a reason for that she's the world number one doubles player and her instincts win to cross her instinct to look to cross at all moments be the aggressor just again shuffle her feet at the net or just do something to disrupt the rhythm of the two Polish players. That was the single greatest disrupting trade and that tone of aggression is ultimately what separated the two teams in that deciding breaker. 10-4 ultimately the way of sphere and Siegmund. They just, again, Siegmund was playing to win In a way, the other three players at times were playing not to lose, playing not to make the error, hoping that their opponent would pop something up as opposed to looking to generate that opportunity to hit the winner on their own terms. And Siegmund played on her own terms more than anyone else in that rubber. That's what propelled the Germans over the finish line. And again, a thrilling United Cup final in what was ultimately a thrilling United Cup. Germany, 2-1 winners. Team, uh, again, Iga Sviantek, your most outstanding player of the event. Let's move on now to our individual events, our tour-level events we had throughout the course of the week. Although it is worth noting, United Cup did offer some points this year. And I think Iga Sviantek up 375 points. So now it's about a a 900-point margin between her and Sabalenka entering the Australian Open. And again, Sabalenka's got to defend title points at that event, worth noting. Uh, So she's a big— A big riser might be a stretch, but 5-0 overall at that event uh, obviously helps her consolidate her position there moving forward. The other big mover, you look on the men's side. Again, for Sasha Zverev, he'll take any points he can get. Didn't have the best start to last season. Now back up to six in the live rankings. He surpasses Stefano Tsitsipas with the 290 points he gains from the past week. Hubi Hurkacz up 75 points. That keeps him at his career high of number nine in the live rankings. Alex Diemenauer up two spots. Surpasses Ruud. Surpasses Fritz. He's number 10. Top 10 debut in the live rankings for Alex Diemon Hour. Now, again, for me, top eight's the number because then you're an ATP tour finalist, but certainly top 10's traditionally been the metric. That's your rankings impact of this United Cup event. And I have no problem with this team event providing rankings points because I know not everyone can gain entry to it, but look at who Demon beat. He beat Zverev. He beat Djokovic. You're telling me he shouldn't be rewarded with rankings points for that, I would think. Otherwise, if you want to offer rankings points to Davis Cup, to Billie Jean King Cup as well, I'm willing to have that conversation. I'm pro just about anything you can talk me into at this point in terms of changing the tennis structure. But again, that's your broad impact of United Cup. A win for sure for that event in 2024. A win for Team Germany 2-1 overall over Poland in the final. But now we can get into our individual events, and let's start in Brisbane on the women's side. Again, oh my god, was Elena Rabacchina exceptional in this 6-3 love six final that didn't last very long. Rabacina off the court in an hour, 13 minutes. She faced just one break point throughout the course of the match. It was interesting because that break point came with Sabalenka down to love already in that second set. Sabalenka breaks. You think, okay, this gets the momentum started, right? Maybe now this gets her confidence on the serve. She gets an easy hold. We've got ourselves a match. Nope, not the case. Rabakina breaks right back for 3-1. Never let up from there. Again, 6-love, six 6-3. Six she knocks out the world number two and you know, again, Sabalenka, yes, they were 2-2 two and two overall last year. Sabalenka had the career head-to-head advantage. She had beaten her in Australia last season. Sabalenka had yet to drop a set against a tougher level of competition, dare I say, this week wins over Azarenka, Kasatkina in particular versus Rabakina's last two matches, wins over Noskova, and then a one-set retirement victory over Apatopova. And yet, it was Rabakina who just came out of the gates swinging. Rabakina just seemed more prepared for the encounter with how aggressive she was in particular getting the ball deep into the body of arena sabalenka didn't have to be in the outer thirds just depth and into the body of arena so that she didn't have time to get into those bigger back swings didn't have clear cut lanes to attack rabacina whether it be down the line whether a b space opened up cross court no it was Sabalenka who popped everything up first and Rabakina who pounced immediately. And I've never seen Rabakana strike the return of serve as well as she did in that opening set. Just felt like she was seeing the Sabalenka serve like a grapefruit. And again, Sabalenka is one of the three best servers we have in women's tennis right now. It was just a flawless, flawless first set that had Sabalenka so far behind the eighth ball that she was just never able to recover. And even after breaking for one 2 in the second set, Sabalenka, Sarcan, hands go in the air and she looks at the tennis gods as if to say thank you finally a game and yet Rabakina bounces right back that was the most impressive part she just never let up again hit her plus must have hit 20 plus one unreturned balls and just everything was so crisp everything was so in rhythm it was the best possible form of power tennis that you can see in the game that we have available right now just Rabakina was flawless and you hope she's able to sustain this level because if she is she can beat anyone in the world that's world number one level tennis that's I can beat cheviontech I just beat Sabalenka, I can beat Coco, I can beat Pagula, I can beat all of you if I'm playing like this. And again, she didn't play a single 7-5 set the entire week. The most games she dropped in a single match was five games, which she dropped 4-1 in her opening match, 3-2 against Nascova, but she was up an opening break of serve, went up 2 love immediately in that Nascova match, and never turned back. She was just never threatened. Elena Rybakina never trailed on the scoreboard this week in five matches. She was broken once. I mean, again, if you're Sabalenka, you come out of this match. I don't even know what you do because Rebokina was striking the ball so brilliantly. Like, did Arena have the best day with her first serve? No, like only, ma- but she made sixty-two percent of them. Like the double faults weren't piling up for Sabalenka. I think she double faulted twice throughout the course of the match. Rabakina just returned lights out and. I thought it was her backhand in return. The backhand line was just, whether it was line on the ad side, inside in with that backhand on the deuce side, I'm not hitting a serve to Rabacchina's backhand the next time I play if I'm Sablanka. The first nine serves are going to the Rabacchina forehand, which, yeah, is, again, playing with fire, but I've just, Rabacchina's backhand was elite in this performance. I think that's my biggest takeaway if I'm Arena Sablanka. It's just like, okay, that spot didn't work on this day. Why didn't it work? Was it her Do I need to flatten it out a little bit more? Is it time to play more kick to that wing to get her even further stretched off the court? It just felt like Sabalenka was always playing off of her back foot. Was Nebula? I mean, there were times when she was able to turn into things, sure, but it was just so rare. Because again, I've just—is this a byproduct of Rebakina having just one of those days on the return of serve? Again, I think if you're Sabalenka, that's got to be the hope. Because Elena played lights out tennis like this version of Elena Rebakina. Can absolutely it's it's a top three conversation. As good as golf was in Auckland, I think Sviantek Sabalank and Rebecca the level I saw from the three of them was even better than anything I saw from Coco, who we'll get to her performance in Auckland here in a second. Why well, I was very encouraged by it, but certainly something uh, to. Anyways, it's just this power tennis. It's I don't know how you disrupt it. Because again, Sabalenka has the weapons to disrupt a Robacana's rhythm, and she was just neb- never able to do it again. Elena Rabakana on serve, absolutely dominant. Uh faced just one break point, a six love, six three victory. Robacana now thirty-five and ten. On hard courts since the start of last year, you look overall for her at these hard court events. She's now made four different finals, two different titles. She's made at least the quarterfinal round at seven of these hard court events. Uh, seven of the twelve that she's played, semifinals in six of the twelve that she's played. Again, made the, to the finals in four of the twelve and won two titles. That's elite. It's top five hard court tennis, and certainly won two of those titles. All right, one of those titles has come at Indian Wells, and you know, again, you've made your finals are Indian Wells. My Miami, the Australian Open, and now with this 500-level event in Brisbane. Yeah, she's brought her best stuff to the biggest hardcore events from now a year straight. You look for her at these events. She's 12-7 against top 20 opponents, 7-3 against top 10 opponents as well, and gets the big win over Sabalenka heading into Australia. So she was elite. Again, if I'm Marina Sabalenka, this is one of those days, and you could see it in the handshake where there's a lot of love between these two players. Elena was just too good. On this day, she disrupted everything Sabalenka wanted to do. And again, it's two elite power tennis players. And on this day, Rabakina just executed better. Sometimes that's the way the balls fall. I know that's great analysis, Alex, of how Sabalenka is going to find a way to dig herself out of this. I think she's got to target the forehand more. Obviously, she's going to have to take some bigger swings on plus ones, not going to be able to afford to play with her food when it's Rabakina because you give Rabakina an inch, she takes a mile. But Elena Rabakina plays like that. She's winning Australian. Like she is winning the Australian Open. That's how good the power tennis was. And that's not meant to be disrespectful to Svantec's level. That's just simply how good uh, Rabakina was on this day. Holds her spot at number three in the live rankings. Another title uh, for the 24-year-old to start her 2024 season. Speaking of Coco Gauff, let's get to Auckland next because I really enjoyed this three-set thriller between Coco Gauff and Alina Svitolina. Svitolina down 5-3 in the opening set, ultimately 7-6. She wins that, but Gauff... Fighting back. Six three-six three takes the next two. So again, great explanation there, Alex. Six seven, six three, six three. The victory ultimately goes to Coco Goff, who of course defends her Auckland title now. With this victory, you look for Coco Goff overall in her career. Again, just nineteen years old, and yet Coco Goff now uh winning her what? I believe this is her seventh, yes, her seventh tour level title of her career. Seven and one in finals, by the way, not too shabby. Uh, for the nineteen year old so let's start with the Svitolina positives, I suppose, before we get to Goff. Alina Svitolina is playing top 20 tennis, and the power tennis she displayed in set number one against Goff was the most remarkable part. I've never seen Alina Svitolina come over the top of her forehand so aggressively, so continuously throughout the course of a set Just any time that forehand was shoulder height, she was bunting down, flattening out and driving that ball through the court, was swinging so aggressively on her backhand cross court, obviously not afraid to flatten it out and go line when the opportunity called for it to change direction, although more often in those positions felt like she was being aggressive with her footwork, trying to set up forehands to swing down upon Uh, Just again, it wasn't just the fact that she broke from down 5-3 in that opening set. She also got broken for 3-1 in the opening set and broke immediately back. So both times she found herself down a break, immediately was able to respond and get those breaks back. She just wasn't able to sustain that level of aggression, the physicality required to pull it off over the course of what was, again, a... Two and a half hour, six seven, six three, six three victory for Coco Gauff, and that's the biggest takeaway for Coco Gauff right now. She's just on a different plane physically than just about every other player we have in the women's game right now. How fit, how quick she is in and out of corners, the totality of things she can do with her speed, with her strength. Whether it's not just again grinding you down from six feet behind the baseline, but using that speed to beat you to the spot, turning into that forehand cross, turning in to the backhand line, beating you to the spot, moving forward and knifing off the volleys, which, again, she's so skilled when she moves forward. The totality of things she could do overwhelmed all of her opponents over the course of time, whether it was, again, after those first six games against Fruvatova, whether it was after that first set against Navarro, after that first set against Svitolina as well, where Svitolina's weapons were the most proficient, and she could match Goff's physicality for a set. She couldn't do it for two and a half hours. And again, Svitolina is still working her way back, right? She still just played 33 matches since returning to the tour in 2023. She's now 21 and 12. Excuse me. That is incorrect. She's not just 21 and 12. She is now, uh, you look overall in her last 52 weeks, 25 and 13 overall. And that's gotten her all the way back up to number 23 in the live rankings uh, you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings coming into the year. Alina Svitolina was ranked uh, at number—that's interesting. Where was Svitolina? Svitolina ELO rankings was number 53 entering the year. That's far too low. She is one of the 20 best players in the world, particularly if she sustains this level. And we got to see her tested against Radakanu, Wozniacki, Bozhkova, the lefty in the weapons of Wang Shiyu in that semifinal from a set down. And then again, facing a top-five opponent in Coco Gauff— Alina Svitolina matched her level, even maybe exceeded it down the stretch of set number one in set number one, but could not sustain that top five level of tennis for the two and a half hours necessary to knock off Coco Goff right down. Again, Goff lost just one set this week. You know, again, she was up 5-3 in the set she lost against Alina Svitolina, had set points, really probably should have closed that one out in straights because she felt like she was always in a winning position. You know, she got broken what a grand total of six times in five matches over the course of the week. She's now 29 and four since the start of the North American hardcore stretch last year. And during those 20, you know, again, of those six events that she's played, Wins DC, loses three sets Montreal quarters to the eventual champion in Pagula, wins Cincinnati beating Sviantec, wins the US Open beating semi semifinals of Beijing lost to Sviantec, Cancun semifinals losses to Pagula and Sviantec, now a win here in Auckland. She's lost to just two players, both top five Iga Sviantec, Jessica Pagula. She's also beaten uh, Sviantec, hasn't beaten Pagula yet during this stretch, but again, She's beaten Sabalenka as well, 29 and four overall during this stretch of time. She's eight and four against top ten opponents on hard courts during this stretch of time as well. She's got to be a top five contender unequivocally. This was exactly the test she was looking for in Auckland heading into the Australian Open, and she passes it. I would say A minus performance if she got off the set, uh, the court in straight sets, getting given Svitolina's level in that final. You would have said A. That it took her that extra two sets. Again, that she was able to dig her way out of that, that she was able to ultimately just be better at pretty much everything down the home stretch in that match, more aggressive, more fluid, better at turning defense into offense. All the things. Coco Goff gets an A minus for the week in Auckland, and again, did everything she needed to do heading into the Australian Open. The biggest problem is how well Rabacan is playing. The fact that Iga's won 16 in a row, that Sabalenka had lost one match but looked so good in the four matches prior... There are some people playing some real ball entering Melbourne. Our top four players in the world all look like the four best players in the world. And how can that not be an exciting thing for all of us tennis fans as we all start to get amped up for the year's first major? Before we get there, though, let's talk men's side of things. Let's talk Brisbane, Hong Kong. And then, yes, we'll get to our Rafa Australian Open-related news. in Brisbane, I mean, again, I've been preaching it for four months now, but what a moment for Grigor Dimitrov, who gets that feather in the cap to me that says, yeah, he's a top eight player right now. Wins his first title since the 2017 ATP Tour Finals, a 7-6-6-4 victory over Hulk Aruna that featured fantastic tennis. There's one break of serve. One break of serve in this match. It came in the second set after Holger Runa hit two not-good-enough forehand approaches. Not—well, one of them he missed straight up, but the other two forehand approaches he hit in that game just weren't good enough, and Grigor comes up with these electric on-the-run passing shots. One forehand, one backhand. Again, Runa overcooks that final forehand approach because Dimitrov had put so much pressure on him with the pass in that game in particular, but— It was flawless tennis. The plus one on both sides, excellent. I actually thought Holger Runa could do more things on the court. Just, again, extend rallies with his backhand and... Boy, did he hit his backhand pass elite at an elite level throughout the course of this match. Hogaruna did so many things well. Kept pace with Dimitrov. Minus three shots. There's three forehands. That's the difference in this match. Three forehands to my eye. That's what allowed Grigor Dimitrov to advance. Guess what? That's the margins at the highest level of this sport. And to Grigor's credit, he just... He was more decisive. He knew precisely what he wanted to do, what spots he wanted to hit. When he got the short forehand, he was moving in behind it. It's what he's been all week. And then physically, again, he's moving so well in and out of corners, striking the backhand, the forehand on the run so beautifully. I mentioned this on yesterday's podcast. Tomorrow, we're going to have Jeff Sackman on the show to offer overreactions to week number one. Here's a tease to that podcast, a topic I want to discuss then, so I'm not going to get into now. Is Grigor Dimitrov playing the best tennis of his career? You look at this stretch. Since making the final in Geneva, 36-12. and It's a 75% win percentage. He's holding serve 86.2% of the time. That would be a top 10 number. He's breaking serve 25.4% of the time. That would be a top 10 number. I think this is the best. You look for Grigor Dimitrov in his career. Career hold percentage, 82.7. Career break percentage, 22.2. Both numbers, if sustained over the course of the year, would be right around career highs for Grigor Dimitrov, and he's been this guy now for six months consecutively. Like, it's just worth having the conversation in further depth. By the way, with this win over Runa, he now moves to 10-9 and 9 against top 20 opponents during this stretch of time, 7-7 and 7 against the top 10. During this stretch of time, I'll bring up what it was in 2017 and look at other stretches of his career in tomorrow's podcast, on tomorrow's podcast, excuse me, but... What a moment for Grigor. And again, this is the feather in the cap to get this streak off of his chest right away to start the season as well. He's now won a title. And now we can go chase all of those other things. Get back not only to the top 10 where, by the way, right now he's 13 in the live rankings, but get back to the top eight. Get back in the mix for a tour final spot. Make another slam, not just quarterfinal, but semifinal. Maybe even finally get to that slam final eclipse because again, during this stretch of time, not just seven and seven against the top ten, he's uh, beaten Alcaraz, he's beaten Medvedev, he's now beaten Runa a couple times, a win over Tsitsipas as well. He's beaten all the guys you got to beat to at least get to that quarterfinal, semifinal stage, and it's been a while since you could talk about Grigor Dimitrov in that breath again. Didn't face uh didn't get broken three of three in fighting off break points throughout the course of this final he was broken just twice throughout the course of this event both of those breaks came in his opening match against Andy Murray the only match where he dropped the set again you look for him overall on the week seventeen of nineteen break points fought off he was what uh doing quick math in my head fourteen of 14 in fighting off break points over his final four matches. Wins over 77% of his first serve points in all of them as well. Grigor Dimitrov played elite plus one tennis and he's moving so well. All he needs is the one break to back it up as well. And he's getting those opportunities to break because of his ability to extend points with his movement. But again, I thought Holger Runo was really good in this final. I thought he played really well all week long. And you look for Holger now, he's 25 and 18 on hard courts over his last 52 weeks, but let's filter out everything that happened in North America. I'm going to filter out everything that happened from Canada to Stockholm. And I know that's being very opportunistic. You're taking a one in six record away from anyone's record. You're going to look much better, but you take that one in six away, he's 24 and 12 on hard courts over his last 52 weeks. I think that's who Holger Runa is on hard courts. I think that's the sort of guy, again, winning two-thirds of his matches, and you look at those results, round of 16 in Australia, round of 16 in Miami, quarterfinals in Paris— Making a uh, final of a 250 event where he beats a bunch of guys ranked just outside the top 40, but inside that top 75 range pretty convincingly. And then plays a really good match against Grigor Dimitrov where he's right there again. He'll be bummed to not get over that final hump and win that first outdoor hardcore title, but... It was his first hardcourt final appearance outdoors, and I thought he played a really high level in this match. It was one break of serve. He fought off eight of the nine break points that he faced, won 65% of his first serve points, made 61% of his first serves. He matched Grigor Dimitrov just about in plus one prowess. It was three missed forehands in one rough service game. That was the difference in this match, because there were moments when Runa found exceptional backhand passes and where he was electric with his athleticism, or he was able to match the physicality of, again, a Grigor who is as locked in physically as he has ever been. He's always been an elite athlete. Runa, at 20 years old, was right there with him. Three forehands. That was the difference. I'm actually feeling really good if I'm Holger Runa coming out of this week despite the disappointing result to end it. Still, what a massive storyline. Last— Three months, we've seen Hatchinov's 2018 Paris title drought end, now Dimitrov's 2017 tour finals drought end. Who's next? I suppose that's the big question. Got to do some research. I'll ask Jeff Sackman that question. That's something maybe we can get into tomorrow. Last, but certainly not least on the results front, shout out to Andre Rublev, a ho-hummer of a 4-4 four and four victory over Emil Roussevori, a ho-hummer in the sense he faced one break point. Throughout the course of the match, lost fewer than 10 points on serve throughout the course of it. And again, the smartest uh, tactic. I want to offer Rublev a compliment in employing. He went after the Rusevori on the run forehand, had no problem taking his backhand line and taking his forehand cross, or just more broadly trying to hit behind Rusevori, knowing that Rusevori knows you're going to try and pick on his backhand. He wants you to try and push him in the ad court because if you leave something in the center, now he's got a center third forehand, which he hits so dangerously cross court inside out. There were moments when I'm sure Andre Rublev looked across the net and was like, oh, so this is what it's like to face someone who's got a a massive forehand that's miserable to go up against. This feels a little bit like me. Uh, and there were certainly moments of that. But Andre Rublev was just a little bit better at all the things. He was a little bit more fluid in and out of the corners, a little bit better with the second serve and protecting it, a little bit more pressure applied on the Rusevori service games. This was a really good 4-4 four and four match. Again, one break of serve in each set. Rusevori matched Rublev's level for the most part, played top 25 tennis. The difference is Rublev's playing top 12, top 10 hardcourt tennis. And again, that's who Andre Rublev has been, 33 and 17 on hard courts over his last 52 weeks of play. But again, yes, that's 17. So what he's played 18 different events after this title now. He's made the quarterfinals or further in eight of those 18 events. He's made the semifinals or further in five of them now into a final of a third event. And You know, again, it's where those quarterfinals are coming. Quarterfinals of the Australian Open, of the US Open, of the Paris Masters, of Shanghai, now here in Hong Kong to start the year. Again, Andre Rublev's a top ten, top eight guys made the tour finals for four consecutive seasons. He makes it. Uh, I've said it yesterday. The Hall of Very Good has a spot with his name on it because match in, match out. You just know exactly what you're going to get. Still, great result for Rusevori. Second career tour level final. And he gets it right away to start the season. Gets him back up into the top 50 of the rankings. He's sitting at number 50, up 19 spots. He's actually the biggest mover in the live rankings in week number one in the top 50 this season. Massive week for Rusevori, but again for Andre Rublev, excuse me, Andre Rublev holding on to his number five spot. By the way, he's still about 800 points ahead of Alex Virov holding on to that number five spot. So if he can make another Australian Open quarterfinal run in barring Zverev winning the event, uh, he should hold on to that spot pretty tightly in the live rankings. For what it's worth, other big movers this week, particularly those 21 and under talents you're looking for in the live rankings on the men's side, Arthur cazot the 21-year-old Frenchman up, 22 spots after winning the Numea Challenger, Jerry Shung, the 18-year-old, up 41 spots to 142, Kazo up to 108, Shung for 142 after making the Hong Kong semis, 18-year-old Jakub Menshik up to 144 after he makes the Canberra final as well. So just a couple of movers to keep an eye on. I'm going to do more of that on this mini break, I Offer you thoughts on rankings, movements each and every week here to start uh, all of these shows. But of course, last but certainly not least, before we end things, I do want to talk about that Rafael Nadal announcement because obviously he talked in the immediate aftermath of his Brisbane quarterfinal about feeling some serious pain and wanting to get it checked out uh, following his loss to Jordan Thompson. Well, uh, early this morning, 4.09 a.m. on social media, Rafa tweeted out the following. He said, hi, all. During my last match in Brisbane, hi, all. Sorry, I'm not going to do a Rafa impression for you all. I thought about it, but I'm not going to. Hi, all. During my last match in Brisbane, I had a small problem on a muscle that, as you know, made me worried. Once I got to Melbourne, I've had the chance to make an MRI and I have a micro-tear on a muscle. Not in the same part where I had the injury, and that's good news. Right now, I am not ready to compete, though, at the maximum level of exigence in five-set matches. Shout out to you, Rafa, good word. I'm flying back to Spain to see my doctor, get some treatment, and rest. I've worked very hard during... Excuse me, I've worked very hard during the year for this comeback sorry i was scrolling tweets i've worked very hard during the year for this comeback and as i always mentioned my goal is to be at my best level in three months within the sad news for me for not being able to play in the front of the amazing melbourne crowds this is not very bad news and we all remain positive with the evolution for the season i really wanted to play here in australia and i've had the chance to play a few matches that made me very happy and positive thanks all for the support and see you soon rafa again Apologies for my lack of reading skills. That's what Rafa wrote. We'll leave that there. Um, It's sad news, certainly. Again, he worked very hard during the year for this comeback, and as he always mentioned, his goal is to be at his best level in three months within the sad news for him for not being able to play in front of the amazing Melbourne crowds. This is not very bad news, and we all remain positive with the evolution for the season. Tells you exactly what we expected coming into the year out of Rafa, right? This is something I discussed on this podcast Rafa has one speed. It's Rafa's speed. It's 110% on every shot, every ball, within every rally. And if Rafa can't play at that speed, he's not going to put himself out there on court. He's not going to put himself out there in a compromised position because that's not who he wants to be. That's not who he mentally, that's just not who he can be. He has one gear to him in the best possible sense, and that's, again, give it his all at all speeds at all times. And that gear is so mentally, physically taxing on the body. Obviously, you've seen that manifest in the injuries he's dealt with throughout the course of his career. And look again, he's a little bit older now. I'm sure the pain tolerance threshold is probably a little lower than it once was. Similarly, he doesn't want to do additional damage on top of whatever injury he's had prior you can totally understand his decision. Like this is if Rafa isn't comfortable being out on court and he's only comfortable out there when he can be giving hundred ten percent effort. He doesn't want to put himself through that, and I don't understand. I don't know anyone out there who that argument or that thought process wouldn't resonate with. He wants to be his best. He cannot be his best, and he doesn't want to offer compromised effort for the fans who go out there expecting to see the same Rafael Nadal we see every match on court for 15 years consecutively. And again. If he isn't confident that he can be that, then he should go rest. Then he should wait until he can be that Rafa because that's the Rafa we all want to see at least one more time before he ultimately decides to hang up his racket and, you know, God willing, we will be able to see it. And the bright spot in that two-tweet sadness is obviously the fact that this feels more preventative than anything else, that he wants to be at his best come Roland Garros, of course, the event that's meant the most to him throughout the course of his career, the event that he always walks onto those grounds feeling he has a chance to win. If he feels playing now might compromise that opportunity for him, then you can understand why he doesn't want to risk it that much further and again, he, he's he been very candid that he only is going to play when he knows he is healthy, when he knows he can be 110% Rafa, so that, the moment he reported any sort of micro tear, I don't know how surprising this news might have been for all of you tennis fans, uh, but certainly disappointing given he looked really good in his first two matches. He had match points against Jordan Thompson as well. Uh, unfortunately, we will not be seeing Rafa in the immediate future as he goes back to Spain, rests up, gets healthy, gets fit. Uh, hopefully, though, we will be able to see him later in 2024, given the fact that, again, he's being a little bit more preventative now. That said, those are my initial thoughts. And again, we can get into more of that over the course of the week. And as we approach the start of this Australian Open, which, by the way, is approaching very very quickly and we'll get into all of our usual preview content as we prepare for the first year, year's first major here at Crack Rackets over the next week for the meantime a shout out to our super producer Daniel Westhoff for the f*** of an editing job he does day in day out making all of our content possible I know I speak for all of us when I say it was great to have him back on this show a thank you to him a thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point you all know the deal tennis-point.com the promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world with that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin say that's the break and we'll talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone